Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're going to, again, try to get through the whole chapter. I'm going to be mindful. I'm not going to go over because I understand it is warm out here, but uh, this is how we're going to, this is the plan. Let's see how it works out. In this chapter, Paul is going to discuss two ways in which the church should use her resources of finances. He's going to tell them that they should be caring for the widows. He's going to tell them that they should be supporting those that are ministering to them as a full-time, as their full-time job, if you will, that they should be taken care of. He's going to tell them about choosing and appointing godly people and not rushing into the appointment of others and how we ought to treat each other and care for one another. It is a chapter that is packed with a lot of information. But let's begin reading there in chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters, with all purity. Well, right off the bat here, we, we can tell that there is, again, this under, um, underlying theme that there was controversy going on at the church in Ephesus. Paul, deal, uh, Paul exhorting Timothy to deal with the false teachers. And now we kind of come into view of another problem, um, and that is going to be uh, the, when you've got to exhort somebody, when you've got to deal with somebody that's older than you. Timothy was young. Um, he exhorted him to be an example as a young minister. But not only those that are older, how about those that are younger than you? Or how about those that are of the opposite sex of you? How should you be interacting with them, and how should you be treating them? Well, what we do see here is that to all of them, there should not be... Um, uh, there should be an exhortation, that challenge to one to walk and follow after the things of the Lord. You know one thing that we all admit to? And I'll put my name right at the top of the list. Here's one thing that we all admit to and agree to when we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We all agree to be exhorted. We all submit ourselves to the mutual care of one another. And that mutual care sometimes is going to take on the look of an exhortation, a corrective word. We also submit ourselves to giving that exhortation to one another. Not being islands, not being uh, uninvolved in people's lives, but that we be people that are involved and encouraging one another to follow after the Lord. But he exhorts Timothy to not give a harsh rebuke to an older man. So maybe these were some of the individuals that were causing so much trouble with the teaching in the church. And he says, make sure that even as you deal with them, you are being respectful. That's a good word as we think about Father's Day, is that our fathers should be respected. Our fathers should be respected. We should, whether or not you think they are deserving of it, does not change what the Word of God says. Obviously, the ones that Paul or Timothy was wanting to rebuke were those that, you know, they weren't, They weren't the nicest people in the congregation there. So he had to deal with them. But the word is this, is that you would show respect to them. Now that doesn't just apply to, uh, you know, children that are living in the home. That applies to those of us that are out of the home. And we're adults, there should be that continued respect that is being shown. Don't treat your father like some young teenager with disdain. 
but respect him. And that is a word that everyone in leadership should have as they deal with people. He also says young men should be treated with respect. So, you know, it was like, well, if I got to treat the older guy with, uh, you know, exhort him as a, a father, well, the younger people I can just domineer, right? No. You can't have a domineering influence over them either. This idea that somewhere along the way has been picked up that pastors and leadership in church should have a hard-handed domineering control because if they don't do it, somehow they're going to lose control, have already lost control. That's not the way the Bible teaches. It tells us to exhort with all long-suffering and to, to, tra- to uh, uh, be patient with one another. Yes, you deal with the divisive person after the second and third warning, and you ask them to leave because of the sake of the, the health of the body, but we must see that this, is, this domineering attitude and fear that would, uh, you would want to exude as a leader is not at all what Jesus did. And I think if Jesus would have been that way, the children wouldn't have been rushing to jump up on his lap. There was something about Jesus that both a child, a sinner, as well as one following the Lord wanted to come and felt comfortable being in his presence. He says older ladies as mothers and young and sisters with purity. In other words, all of those relationships should have a respect within them. And exhort. Exhort, yes, we do that. We challenge each other to walk after the Lord. There in verse 3, he goes to the heart of the matter. And that was a problem that was existing in the church about caring for widows. And he's going to put widows in a couple of different categories. He's going to put the widows that are older in one category. He's going to put those that are um, uh, younger in a category. And then those that are older, he's going to then even break down further that some should not, even, should not be cared for. And he's going to give the reasons for it. So how does the church use the, the resources? Thank you. It's a windscreen. And they're really hard to put on when you can't see what you're doing. All right, I think I got it. So this is, this is how he's going, to, he's going to break them down in different categories and that they should be cared for. So let's begin reading at verses 3 and 4. It says, honor widows who are really widows. Now he's going to define what he means by really widows. The widows that would make it onto the uh, church's official list of caring for them financially. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn, first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So... Evidently, there were those that, were, that had moms, that had grandmothers um, in the church, and they were unwilling to financially care for those ladies in their life. And, and what Paul says is, wait a minute, you, you need to honor them first and foremost in your own home. If you have somebody that is in that place, you, you need to be prepared to take care of them. When This is a question that we actually ask when people come in. And they ask for uh, financial assistance, which we do. One of the questions that we ask is this, we've dropped from this principle. Is your family aware of your need and is your family um, involved in helping you? And often what we'll hear is, I'm, I'm too embarrassed to let them know about my need. And so then it becomes a discipleship moment for us to help them and we take them to this passage. Sometimes we'll 
even speak with the, the, the children. Well, get permission to call up the family members and say, hey, you're, you know, this older person, this mother, this father, this person in your family, they are in need. Are you aware of this need? And sometimes it becomes a discipleship moment for them as well. But if you're going to care for uh, somebody within the church, the first responsibility falls to the family. Let me just say this. Now, th- this is not a, you know, we have a society, we have a, a, you know, a system that in many cases allows us to plan and prepare for those years in a way they were unable to plan and prepare for those years. And so the need does not have the same impact as it did in theirs. But to think that there is not needs among your family, among those that are aging, would just be simply naive to think that. And so we must be aware. So uh, this is what I'll say to you younger, um, those of you that have parents um, that are alive, you need to be planning now for those days. You need to be thinking about it now. And this is a biblical truth, is that we would care for our parents. We keep on reading there in verses 5 and 7. It says, Now, she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, and these things command that they may be blameless. So not only if you're going to care for a widow and take them on to the responsibility of the church, must there not be a family member who can first assume that responsibility, but they also must have a good reputation. They must be those who are following the Lord and trusting in the Lord and have given themselves to prayer. That they have a lifestyle of prayer. So the, the, Paul really narrows down those that are going to be taken into this long-term official care. And he highlights a group that we really have little information about there in verse 6 that, that were wanting to be counted on the list and on the roll, but they were not living for the Lord. They had other ungodly pleasures that were leading them astray. And Paul says, this is not the kind of widow that we want you to be taking care of. And so there's a warning there. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So he comes back to this point again. For us as family to have those among us that are in need and to not meet that need because we want to have more to ourself and want to live a particular way and have a certain amount of freedom, you need to hear what it says. That mentality is worse than an unbeliever, which is a way of saying even unbelievers get this point. (laughs) Even unbelievers understand the need to care for mother and father. And so there is this challenge and there is this exhortation that goes forth that we need to care for them. And to not do that is worse than an unbeliever. Now listen, this is, a, this is a, 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 a topic that has many different fingers and many different arms with all kinds of implications. And I understand that. And if, you're, if you have one of those things, it's like, wow, I hear what you're saying and I see what the word says. But here's my circumstances. We're happy to sit down and talk to you about those other circumstances and work through that. But let's just keep it right in front of us. With the, the, the most obvious application is that you need to be planning and you need to be preparing for the care of your parents as they would age and they would come to that place 
where they would be in need. And there are many different ways you can do that. But to walk away from that responsibility and say we just can't do that because we have too many travel plans or because we finally have our alone time, our kids are finally out of the house. No, 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 no. Worse than an unbeliever. To see your family in need and to walk away. Do you know the other place where this similar kind of language is used by Paul that's worse than an unbeliever? It's when he confronts incest at the church of Corinth and he says, you guys are proud about this. Things that even cause unbelievers to blush. (laughs) And so there are some things that in Paul's mind, just like unbelievers don't even go where you guys are going. And so it's a strong exhortation that is founded upon the word of God. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father, father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. How do you honor them? Well, we're looking at it right here. Honor widows. You care for them, and you have this responsibility. Does that mean it's easy? Sometimes it may. It might be a real blessing. Sometimes maybe it's not. Verses 9 and 10 who qualifies to be on the list of, uh, of the church where widows will be cared for? Verses 9 and 10. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man. Well reported for good works. If she's brought up children. If she's lodged strangers. If she's washed the saints' feet. If she's received the afflicted. If she has dil- diligently followed every good work. Wow. That's, pretty, that's a pretty high standard, isn't it? The church had limited resources. How were they going to care for and who were they going to care for? And Paul says, here are the kind of people that you're going to care for. Over 60 years of age certainly would have had a cultural impact based upon the longevity of a person's life there. But this is, this is what he puts down. In other words, they need to be those that are past that age where they're able to go out, and we'll see this in just a moment, and get remarried or find another way to, to be cared for. But they need to be 60 years of age. They need to not be, it says here, um, it needs to have one wife, has been the wife of one man. This is the same exact phraseology and wording that's used of those that could be an elder, those that have been the wife, excuse me, the husband of one wife. And the same controversy kind of centers around this. Does this mean that if a woman had ever been divorced that she could not be cared for? Or does this mean if she's ever been remarried because her first husband had, um, had passed away and she got remarried? You know, this is what it, it's saying is that she, just like we applied with the, the elders, is that an elder should be a one-woman man. He has a heart for one woman. He's been faithful in his love for that woman that he is married to. To think that because of um, uh, you know, a woman being divorced, because um, she got, became a Christian, and now the husband divorced her and walked away, which some have taken this application to mean, it just doesn't fit with the character and nature and the te- rest of the teaching of Scripture. That her first husband died and she got remarried and so now she would not be counted faithful. No, the idea is that she has not put herself in the circumstances of being in great need because she has trashed her family and the means of supporting herself by her infidelity. That's the idea here, which I believe is backed up by the rest of what we see, that she's been a kind person. She's been one that's been hospitable. She's now going to reap what she has sown throughout her life. The care and the ministry to others. In other words, 
Check out her resume. What is her spiritual resume? What does it look like? Which is interesting for all of us to consider this, is that we all have a spiritual resume that, we're, that we have been building and that we're contributing to right now. What are the things you would put down on your resume, your spiritual resume, that would be put forth for saying, I am a person that has a spiritual focus and a spiritual heart and I care for people. What are those tangible things you can look to in your life? It's important that we are building that resume, not just for this purpose, but it certainly became an important reason. In verses 11 through 15, he speaks of those who should not be on the list. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. The idea here seems to be, although it's a very difficult verse, but just that she ends up marrying an unbeliever. And so she turns her back on the Lord. Not that marrying in and of itself would be turning um, your back on the Lord, because he's going to encourage that in just a moment. So clearly we're talking about a certain kind of marriage that would that would uh, describe her walking away from the Lord. She's marrying a, a person outside of the faith. And this would be a, rat, a bad reputation. Oh, look, here's one that the church in our town used to care for, and now she's, a, she's at the uh, temple and worshiping idols. What's up with these people? And that would seem to be the concern. It says, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossip and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that young widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. So clearly, there are some incidents that are going on in this church that we don't have all the information for with widows that are causing a bad reputation to be formed in the community and people that are stirring up strife. And so Paul puts down a very strict guidelines for those that can be helped out and can be served on an ongoing official list basis. Now, I don't think that this means that you can't help somebody out in need and, he, and help that immediate need. Um, we can still do that even if they are over 60 or even if they maybe have brought all kinds of trouble upon themselves. But if you're going to bring somebody onto this official list, there needed to be a certain standard that would reflect the kind of character that a Christian woman ought to have. Again, don't have all the information, but we get a pretty clear idea is that the church should be responsible with her finances and her testimony. And we are to be responsible by caring for those in need and that we're caring for those on an ongoing basis. Now, listen, in 25 years of pastoring this church, there's only been one person that we've had to care for on a consistent, ongoing basis. She is with the Lord now. Um, and, you know, she met these different standards. So, you know, it's not the same kind of need, but we must have this mentality and this heart that says, I, we as a church are willing to meet the needs of those that are around us. Even if it is an ongoing need, we should be willing to do that. And there are certain ways by which we have established, uh, you know, benevolence and looking for and caring for people. 
And so if you ever find yourself in that need, it might be embarrassing. It might be really hard to come step forward and say, I have the need. But listen, you have a, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters, a body of believers that want to be obedient to the word of God and would want to care for you. So you need to be aware of that. You need to make certain that you let the leadership know or let your, your home fellowship leader or let others know so that we can, we can reach out to you and minister to you in that way. But just this overall heart mentality to care for those in need. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 puts it this way. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, don't just say, love you, bro. I hope you can find a meal somewhere. Love you, sister. I hope you can pay that bill. we got a big family vacation we're going on. We've been saving up for years. We can't hardly wait to go. No, if we have the means to care, then we must use those resources to care. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yes, we are to look out to the world and to, be, to show generosity and kindness to them, but we have a special commandment to care for one another. We have no idea what the future holds, do we? <laughs> Has anybody learned that lesson this year? We have no idea what the future holds. That we, we, you know, we can look at, the, at history, we can look at indicators and get an idea of what's going to take place. But what we've learned is things change. With one news cycle, things change like that. They change across the nation. They change across the world. They change in our families. They change in your finances. They change in your health. They change in relationships. And it happens so quickly. No, there is an inner dependence that Christ wants us to have upon each other. We are the body of Christ. How dependent are you for this member here for the rest of your body or this member or your right leg or your left leg? You are very dependent upon the members of your physical body for the well-being of your whole body. And we are the body of Christ. And each of us as members are to understand that interdependence. And the idea that I can just separate and do my own thing. And I don't really need help. And I'm really okay. I've got this. I just want to come and hear a Bible study. That's not biblical. That is not a biblical form of Christianity or way the, the, the body of Christ is meant to function. We are meant to be interconnected and knowing each other well enough to express need as well as to observe need. And uh, listen, I'm sure we don't get an A plus here. But I have been blessed over and over again to find out well after the fact of how a home fellowship is taking care of a need or how one brother or one family has found out the need of another family. It never, it never came to the attention of the church. It was just taken care of. And this is how we are to function. And it could change so quickly. The need for one another on a physical level could quickly return to this place so fast. As a matter of fact, many places in the world, it's still like this. We live in this interesting, unique bubble. 
of America where we have so many resources and we're able to care for um, ourselves and the need for one another is not felt as much as it is felt in other places. It's still there. We're not naive to that. We don't want to be simplistic here. But we need to make certain that we're thinking. With every penny that you have, this is to be used for the household. My household. The household of God and the household of faith. And to reserve and retreat into our own little caves is not what the Lord would have us to do. I love how it's described in the book, in the, in, the, uh, in the law, of how we are to interact with each other and the poor of our land. And you've heard me, if you've been here for years, you've heard me give this illustration many times. It says that the children of Israel were to have an open hand to the poor in their land. An open hand. Well, when you have an open hand and resources are in that open hand, what do you risk? You risk somebody taking it out of your hand. But this is the posture. This is the heart. This is the practical way in which we are to walk with each other is with an open hand. Not a tight fist. You know what the problem is with a tight fist? People won't see you as a person. They won't see me. They won't see us as a church to come because we are so tight fisted. They'll never help you there. Now listen, there's a lot that want to scam, and we see here the wisdom of being discerning and making certain that you only help those that have true need. So there's a balance in all of this, but we are to have an open hand. And when we have the discernment and the knowledge that somebody's trying to scam, then we close our hand. But until that time in which we have that knowledge, we allow the hand to be open and risk being taken advantage of. Because in the end, don't we all want to stand before the Lord with the error, or if we have an error to stand before the Lord with an error that I left my hand open uh, wide too long rather than I never opened my hand at all? Hey, I think I could live with standing before the Lord and saying, yeah, I guess I should have shut my hand a little quicker than I did. But to stand before the Lord and say, you had the world's goods and I blessed you and you kept a tight fist. Why did you do that? Don't you know that you are to be one in the household of faith that was quick to serve and to minister? And this, I believe, is the application we should have. Both in an official sense, but also we all just walk that way. So this is the exhortation we find about caring for others and widows specifically. And then and we, I'll be, I'm going to finish up in 10 minutes. I'm going to finish on time here. We talk about how to treat elders. In verses 17 and 18, I always find this an interesting passage to teach. <laughs> Can you figure out why? Uh, because I'm up here telling you how you're to treat me. Uh, but I also have to teach the passages that explain what you hold me accountable to. But it's in the Word of God, so let's, let's look at this. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the Word and doctrine. For the Scriptures say, says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So he deals with how the church's finances should be used as it relates to widows. How do you use the resources for those that have given themselves over to ministry to the point that they, can, they don't have the time to go work a regular job and to provide for themselves? And the short answer is you compensate them, which you all do well in which the elders um, who oversee these things um, and 
for the staff, also they do well. They're responsible, they have a plan, they have a system by which they function and which they walk through. But the idea that because you're in the ministry, you ought to be suffering financially is not what the Bible teaches. It's that you should be taken care of. It doesn't mean it makes you wealthy and rich, but that you're taken care of. So this is just a simple instruction. And it's found in the Old Testament. Jesus also made this mention. Now, verse 19, still with, in regards to uh, elders, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So if, if you're going to engage in a, uh, an accusation and make a statement about the leadership that is in, that's uh, ministering in, over the church, the, the exhortation is, don't engage in uh, gossip and rumors that are unfounded. These things must be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Again, a principle from the Old Testament. Hearsay, one perception, things like, I think, or, you know, it may be, I heard, these are not things that should be brought against the elders. Now, I think if you keep it in context, what could possibly be the accusation that they're receiving? Or that's, being, that's coming against them. Well, maybe something that sounds like this. Yeah, uh, the widow came and he wouldn't give her any money. Well, that's a pretty hard accusation to have to deal with, isn't it? But here's the word of God that says, hey, this is how you deal with it. Maybe these were some of the accusations. Timothy and the other elders were unwilling to support and help out some of the widows because they're living an ungodly life. Maybe they had even gotten remarried. And now they're at the temple of another God, and they're asking for money. And it's like, no, well, they don't, they don't help out widows. Now, listen, the Bible doesn't say that's what's going on, but it's not hard to imagine that. This is what I'll say for the elders you have at this church. These are good, godly men. I know them all individually. I'm close with them. It does not mean we are perfect. It does not mean that we cannot fall into sin. All of those things are possible. But listen, these are men that walk after the Lord, and they deserve the benefit of the doubt. They deserve the benefit of the doubt. That until proven otherwise, you would say, I know their character, I know the way they conduct themselves, and this accusation does not align. Now, if it comes that two or three witnesses can bring that accusation, then it's to go before the rest of the elders, as we will see in just a moment. But, you know, and again, I mean, I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'm not aiming at something here. It's the next thing in the text. You're not like, oh, man, I wonder what's going on. No, there's nothing going on, okay? It's, I mean, it's peaceable. There's, this is like the easiest church in the world to pastor. You guys have... You know, um, I'm sure there are things that happen that I don't know about, but for what I do know, and I know a lot, I probably know more than you think I know, too. It's a, it's a pleasure to serve and to minister to you all. And, um, and so this is not an issue that I'm, I'm addressing. Oh, thank you, clouds. Now you know how the children of Israel felt when the cloud followed them by day. Have you ever wondered that? That's why right there, because you feel cooler right now. But, but here's, here's the deal. Far too often, what is 
causing the church to be preoccupied and the kinds of things that elders are having to deal with are accusations that do not deal with bad doctrine. They do not deal with bad character. They do not deal with unethical behavior or unloving interaction. They have to do with opinions and preferences and about this thing and about that thing. And honestly, if we have leaders that are doctrinally sound, morally upright, walking in love and walking out things ethically, you got good leadership. And far too often in the history of the church, they have been picked apart by things that just don't matter. Now, as I say this, I, again, I'm not really trying to correct anything here. But maybe some people are listening from another church. Or maybe this will be a relevant conversation for us on Monday. I don't know. You know, we, we never know when this is going to have to be walked out and applied. They had a saying, we were you know, missionaries in Australia for a while. And you know what the saying was in Australia? That the, the favorite dish on Sunday afternoon was roast preacher. <laughs> That's what they used to say. How tragic. How tragic that that would be the case. But what if they are in error? Well, verse 20 and 21. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. And the idea of sinning here is they are ongoing in this sin. Idea of not repenting. It's a present tense. It's an active present tense kind of an idea. Well, they are to be rebuked in the presence of all. Who's the all? Eh, you know, is it the rest of the body? Is it the elders? I lean towards the elders coming and rebuking them, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. So be careful on how you walk this out. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. So we're talking about the character of leadership. Well, Timothy, make sure you don't put people into leadership too quick. That's an error. It's a mistake. Any of you ever want to go start a church? Any of you ever want to go establish a ministry? Here's the word for you. Be slow. Be very slow as you put people into those places of leadership. Make certain you know their character. Make sure you know their doctrine. Make sure you know what it's like to walk through a trial with them. Make certain that you two can walk together. Because if you can't, it will cause great hardship for the body of Christ. We close with just in verse 23. Kind of seems to come out of nowhere, really. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake, that is, for medicinal purposes, and your frequent infirmities. Timothy obviously had decided that he was never going to drink alcohol. And that even when he was drinking contaminated water, it would seem, that he still wouldn't change up what he, his, uh, his beverage intake to uh, include wine, which would have been safer than water that was well known back then to often have cooties in it. And so it was, it was upsetting his stomach. And so Paul's like, hey, Timothy... Why don't you have some wine for your stomach's sake here? And so, you know, Timothy walked uh, the, under this conviction. And this is how he was walking out. He, you know, it would seem from what we're going to read in the next two verses, he didn't want any accusation to be brought against him. In context, this is it. And I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that heart and that desire that doesn't want people to be stumbled or to accuse of, of wrongdoing. And this is how he walked it out. So it's clear from this passage that drinking alcohol was not prohibited. But you also understand, if you're one that's 
um, on the side, well, I believe you can drink alcohol. There's no problem with it. Okay, great. But understand, this was an exhortation for medicinal purposes, not an, an attempt to get every one of your friends who does not want to have alcohol to drink alcohol. I think there are two extremes. Here's one extreme. Is that, you know, when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was actually just Welch's. Okay? It just didn't have the label on it yet. It just was Welch's grape juice. That's all that it was. Yeah, I don't believe that for a second. Nor do I believe that this is grape juice. Because it's wine for medicinal purposes. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is to come to the place where, well, the church for too long said that it's wrong to drink. Therefore, I'm on a crusade and a mission to make certain that everybody drinks. And, and you're like, who does that? No, they do. I've heard so many pastors, like, nearly urging other pastors to drink because they're caught up in legalism. Be careful what you ask for. Because if that person does, and they are one that's prone to not being able to control that, then you, what have you just done? You know, listen, drunkenness is wrong. And then people have their convictions about how they're going to walk that out. And we must give them that freedom to walk that out. But drunkenness is always wrong. But, I, but we certainly should not be, you know, um, on this crusade to make certain that people are drinking. It's like, does anybody do that for Dr. Pepper? I mean, it's like, everybody's got to drink Dr. Pepper. You've got to try the Dr. Pepper. No, nobody does that. So if it's just a beverage, then let it be just a beverage. And if it's more to you than any other beverage, then that's a good warning for you to stop and ask why. Why is this more to me than coffee? Or why is this more to me than this thing, this beverage, or that drink? If it becomes that important to you over and above everything else, I submit to you it's no longer just a beverage. It's something else to you. And that's all that it should be. So we, we wrap up here. Some men's are sins clearly evident. You can really tell. I mean, the town drunk, it's pretty clear. And precedes them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. In other words, you don't really know what they've been up to until a later time. Likewise, good works of some are clearly evident. And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So good works sometimes are really obvious, and sometimes they're not really obvious, but they become obvious later. So the context may be related back to verse 22, where he says, don't lay your hands upon a novice. Make sure you get to know them so you really can see the good works, and you can really see maybe that which is hidden. But maybe Paul is also saying this to him because he was afraid that if he drank, that he would be accused so harshly that some would associate him as being an evil man. And so maybe what Paul's trying to connect here is just saying, hey, Timothy, people know what kind of man you are. It's all right. Have a little wine. You're always sick. It'll help you out. And so maybe he's just trying to ease his conscience and afraid of the accusations that may come against him. And so he does this. But it also, in the context, may be directly linking back to verse 22, that you look for people that are full of good fruits and good works. So, listen, it's a passage that's interesting, isn't it? It's like the only time you turn to this passage is <clears throat> when you have to deal with these specific things. It's pretty detailed about dealing with elders and about dealing with widows. But this is what we find, is that we are to honor. Every one of us is to show honor. We show honor to the widows. We show honor to the Elders, But we also show honor to the older man who is in need of an exhortation or to the older woman who's in need of an exhortation or the younger man because we honor everybody. 
We have a mutual respect for one another. And so we speak to one another in a way that is fitting and appropriate and right. And we also, we also make certain that you know, we're, we're, we're not trampling people and destroying reputations, but that we are careful as we reach our conclusion. So, again, a lot of practical exhortation, but I just would hope that we would walk away with this because I think this is really what is so important for us is that we need to be connected enough with each other which I realize has been hard here lately. But we need to be connected enough with each other as the body of Christ that we can see need to help need, that we can express need to receive help in our time of need. And if you're in a time of need, you got to let us know. If you're like, how come nobody's helping me out? I'll tell you why I'm not helping you out. I don't know that you have need. So you have an opportunity to contact us, and we want to hear about that, and we want to minister to you, as do all of us that are sitting out here. This is the heart's desire. And I pray that you're encouraged and and strengthened and that you'll look again and again to the word of God to know how to conduct yourself and how we would know how to conduct ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth. Jesus, we ask that our eyes would be set upon you and they would be set upon each other that we wouldn't look the other way when the need arises. Maybe that need is even right in our own home here today. We've been looking the other way. I pray, Lord, that your word would go forth and would have the appropriate impact upon our heart and upon our life to care for our family, but our extended family, the body of Christ, that we would serve each other and that we would be kind to each other that we would learn how to speak to one another in such a way that when an exhortation is needed to be given, that it's not given from place of a harsh rebuke, but, but a loving exhortation to follow. So, Lord, this is our heart's desire. And, Lord, I pray that you would continue to build unity within the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. We thank you for the unity that you have given to us. But, Lord, we don't want to step back and pat ourselves on the back here today. We want to say, Lord, help us to continue to strive for the unity and the bond of peace. That we would walk out and live out that which you did at the cross was to make the two men one. Bringing people together on opposite ends of the spectrum and uniting our hearts together. And that, Lord, we would maintain that which you have purchased at the cross. Help us, Lord, to, to be ready to meet any need at any time. And that we would not be self-seeking, but we would be others-centered. And Lord, we thank you for the family. We pray, Lord, for these, these days that are, that are so challenging in front of us, that have made it so difficult for us to maintain regular fellowship, to be able to interact with one another. Lord, it's our prayer that we would do all that we can to maintain the relationships with the restrictions and the limitations that we're experiencing right now. Lord, we thank you for the little bit of freedom that we do have to meet like this and uh, other uh, occasions that we're gathering together. Lord, we see the great need for one another like we never have. We admit, we confess, Lord, your church, the only institution that you established while you were here on earth, is good and is right. It is necessary. It's important. And Lord, we pray that your church would come back together in the coming weeks and months, not only here, but in every church in town, 
and that we would function as we are supposed to function, as a loving group of people looking out for one another and caring for one another. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.